maybe in a bit of shock, their expectations weren't met. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so it's a pleasure to be here. And um, it's really nice to see how different traditions help each other. You know, how a Zen temple invites insight practitioners in and, and vice versa. Um, it must be America. So um, tonight, it's interesting, uh, I've been in California for a month and a half and I've spent about two weeks in the Bay Area and um, meeting different groups, mostly insight groups. And uh, they say that their halls have been full since a, a certain person came into power. People have been flocking to meditation, feeling a sense of uh, anxiety, whether they're from whatever side of the political fence they are from. Um, and I think a lot of people in the world, like it's like we live in uncertain times, you know, and... Uh, it's almost like, you know, I asked some friends who are a little bit older, I said, you know, is this what it was like when the Vietnam War was going on? Is this what it was like when the Second World War was going on? And people are like, well, in a way, yes. Like, there, there's time, this is a time of uncertainty when, uh, when leaders are doing things that don't necessarily reflect, like when society is extremely divided and leaders are doing things that don't necessarily reflect the wishes um, of everyone in, in the country, and things are very polarized and, and tense. So I had a very interesting day in Berkeley. Um, I saw uh, an, an old homeless man peeing in front of the library. And, um, I mean, you kind of expect to see that in India, but maybe not so much in America. But that's becoming more and more common because there's 150,000 homeless people in the Bay Area. Um, and it's like people think, oh, well, you know, I come to the temple to forget those things because my life is too overwhelming. And then I had an interesting experience um, near a supermarket. Um, uh, a a born-again Christian man came up to me and said, I hope you found Jesus. <laughs> and I said, I hope you found Jesus. And, and he said, and he said, um, and I said, you know, Jesus, and then the security guard at the supermarket said, Jesus was a stoner man. <laughs> and um, this, must, this is California. And then I said, do you know, do you know that Jesus hung out with sex workers and um, Samaritans, which were a, a persecuted minority? And he was all about compassion and diversity. And this man said, Jesus said that uh, I am the way and the life, the only way, come to me. And I said, um, I'm not feeling the love of Jesus from you. I'm, I'm feeling a lot of hatred and bigotry. And he said, um, the color of your red robes reminds me of the burning flames of hell to which you'll be going soon. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't, I didn't say it to him. But I just thought, wow, the, the love of Jesus disappeared so quickly. <laughs> you know, and I, it was like the, the, the hot underbelly of what the polarities of America, you know. And then, you know, there's also the, the kind of uh, the vegan bakery with all the, the calm people smiling. You know, so there's so many, um, there's so many Americas, you know. Um, and then, oh, and I also saw police um, surrounding a car with, with some men who were drinking beer, like gallons of beer inside their car, which had the back window smashed out. So that was also interesting. <laughs> um, but there are many Americas, you know. And we, we especially now with social media creating a, um, a kind of vacuum, you know, like an echo chamber. We think that everyone is like us. Or if you live in San Francisco or Berkeley, you think everyone is like you. But no, everyone is not like you. you know? And that's the scary thing in a way. But uh, somehow we have to share this one planet. You know? Somehow we have to... Because in the old days, you know, everyone watched the same source of news. And there was... You know, 
Nowadays, you can just set up a website and make news yourself, you know. And you can make it look real and bona fide. And where is the, um, the reporter's ethic, you know, of unbiased news reporting? So, you know, question everything. The Buddha said that, right? Test, t- test the truth like a goldsmith tests gold in order to determine its purity. Um, and I think when, the Buddha, you know, in the Fire Sutta, the Buddha said, all the world is on fire, all the world is burning. You know, it is, is burning with greed, hatred, and delusion. But it is also uh, because of suffering that there is the, the possibility of the end of suffering. It is through understanding suffering that we can go beyond suffering. So to suffer is not enough. You know, to transcend suffering is the point of Dharma. But the question of transcending suffering in a time where not only you, but the world is on fire. The world has always been on fire. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning. Um, (laughs) But uh, how to find, how to be a lotus in a sea of fire is the question. You know, and, and it's really interesting that socially engaged Buddhism was founded by Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese monk who uh, realized that the Dharma had to be translated into new ways to be relevant to the pain of the world, you know, because monks were setting themselves on fire, because suddenly their country overnight had become hell, um, mostly because interests greater than their own, greater than the local people's interests, were being carried out on the stage a, f- a fight between capitalism and communism. And, um, and people who were completely uninvolved were being bombed, you know. It's, it's always the civilians that suffer, you know, because of that, the, the power games of some very powerful men who, th- those men very often, very seldom end up dead. Um, so he went out into the villages, he trained young people as social workers... Um, they educated children in schools, they made sure orphans had enough food, they tried to take medical supplies to villages that had been napalmed. Um, as a response to keep sane from all the pain around them. You know? It wasn't like they just decided, it was because there was a need for that. I mean, what would you do if your friend set themselves on fire? That, that they were in that much pain, you know? So... Uh, but what Thich Nhat Hanh did was understand the fundamental need for practice in times of great difficulty. And, but also understanding that practice may not be enough. That if you practice, if you penetrate the heart of the truth, then you're totally open. And you, you naturally, like when you get this transcendental experience, if you're lucky enough to get it, you know, or a glimpse of it, a piece, then you see the truth of what the Buddha was talking about and you realize the Buddha's not a fraud, you know, the Buddha's completely genuine, you know. Um, and that he was talking about a truth that's, that transcends race or gender or politics, you know, conservative or not conservative. The Buddha had all kinds of disciples, rich and poor, and he treated them all the same. And he actually requested people when they came to dress simply. That's why in Theravadan countries, everybody wears white when they go to the temple because there's not a lot you can do to pimp out white. You know, he said, dress simply to show the purity of your intention. You know, because these kings would be competing with each other to see who could be the most fine with the biggest parasol on an, um, on an elephant, you know, kind of turning up for his teachings. He'd be like, please, get off your elephant, come down and be with everyone, you know. So we need to come together and we need to get off our elephants and put on our pure intentions and meet people as they are, where they are, you know. Um, but if you, have, if you have a sense of peace, a sense of beauty, a sense of joy from the practice, or, you know, what, whatever you do to get moments of that, you need to keep doing that in these times, you know, people say, oh, it's very selfish to, to just stay on your cushion. And, but you need self-care too, okay? So take a bath. Go to the movies. 
go to your favorite cafe, take a friend to the park, hug your loved one, take time, take a holiday, you know. But balance. We have two hands, right? One to take, one to give. The hand of the giver is never empty. Don't curse the darkness, light a candle. So our practice nourishes us. And through our practice, we feel connected. We feel a sense of openness and warmth and bravery and courage. And we start to understand that this practice, I mean, most of us come to practice because we're stressed out and we need some peace and we need some inspiration. And it's about us. You know, and then we hear, oh yes, the Buddha said, um, kind of find your own, liber- work your own liberation out diligently, and we think, great, me. You know, talking about my generation. Um, but actually, it's not just about you. As you practice more, you will understand that. Hopefully, you know, that the cult of the individual is actually destroying the planet, and. Um, the disembodiment of not being in touch with your emotions, not being in touch with the earth, not being in touch with each other, is having severe consequences around the world. So to understand practice, to understand freedom, to understand the infinite Buddha nature like the blue sky, without beginning or end, without boundaries, without borders, that is the purpose of human life, the inheritance that is all of ours. Um, To understand that and to taste that freedom is to understand that that is the birthright of every human being and no one's Buddha nature is any better or any worse than your own. And to understand that is is to penetrate the nature of interbeing. This arises because that arises. This is because that is. Yeah? The Buddha taught the teacher taught that all things have a cause and their cessation he also taught. So what are the non-you elements without which you don't exist? You, this being, are like the center of a spider's web with infinite lines of existence meeting in a certain time and space. And this mind stream of yours uh, is like a river that goes on in time, that carries the seeds of karma, but that, it's, that is also not permanent or solid. It is illusory and conditioned. You can't put your foot in the same river twice, and yet you can remember yesterday and you experience the future karma. You know? um, but you are not the same person you were 20 years ago. You, know? you always change. So... What are the non-you elements? Air, water, earth, clothes, keeping you warm. Who gave you this? Where did you come from? Mother. Mother, father. Yeah? Her, Her body nourished you for nine months. And when the time came to give birth, she went through the agony of 50 bones breaking at once. Yeah. Um, some women die giving birth. In Chad, in Africa, it's more common for a girl below 18 to die giving birth than it is for her to go to university. All around the world, thousands of women die every day giving birth. And in the past, it was also very risky. You know, so much agony that they can't, they can't. They're in so much pain they don't even notice their own skin ripping open as they give birth. That's a big kindness, you know. Your own flesh formed by someone else, you know. And the fact that you can see a sunrise, the fact you can fall in love, the fact that you can study Dharma and become liberated is because of your mother's kindness in giving you a body, even if she did nothing else for you. It's a hell of a lot. And your father, you know, donating that, that bit, and, you know, probably supporting you in some way or another, working until his bones ached, probably in a job he hated, or someone like a father or like a mother. We're all alive here, so someone cared for us, someone fed us, 
and sang to us and taught us to teach, uh, to speak when we were as helpless as a worm and surely would have died without the love and care of someone like a mother. So there was a time in our life where we were vulnerable and we may not have been perfectly loved. Our parents may have made many mistakes, but they, most of them did the best they could. And if, they, if we don't have someone like that, there was someone somewhere at some time who loved us enough so that we survived. That in itself is a miracle, you know. And, um, and then, you know, you, you grow up and you learn lots of things and you need to be taught right from wrong and what's safe and what's not. If I, if I think of my own mother, I see it, you know, I used to feel embarrassed because my mother had me when she was 36 and my father was 45. I was the result of Catholic birth control, the, the third of three children. And um, people would say, is that your grandparents? Because my father had cancer and he looked very old. But, you know, now I think, and I'd feel embarrassed. And every, now I think about it, every line on their face, you know, was there because of me. Because they never gave them, I mean, think about it. You don't get proper sleep for about five years. And you have three kids, pre- pl- pl- no proper sleep for 15 years, you know. And you're just working and working and working and worrying and worrying and worrying. Of course you're going to let yourself go, you know. Because you, they, they never gave themselves a moment's peace. Because they were always thinking, is, is my child safe? Do they have everything they need? You know, if they could, they would give me the whole world. You know? Um, such endless selfless giving. It's very moving, you know? That's the basis of the bodhisattva thought, the bodhisattva idea of compassion, of interconnectedness, of, of realizing that you can't just take everything you've received and give nothing in return, you know? that we should repay the kindness of our parents, our mother. And to also see, these are, these are very traditional Buddhist ideas, but I think it ties in with ecology and it ties in with science. The idea of interbeing, interconnectedness. You know, Because everybody's been your mother. There's not one person, life after life, who hasn't been your lover or your best friend or your mother or your child. If you don't like your parents, think of your children, think of your dog, think of your teacher. The fact you can read an inspiring book or a beautiful poem is the kindness of the poet and the kindness of the teacher and the kindness of the Chinese who invented paper. Think of a cup of tea, you know. Think of coffee. Those people who found coffee for us, bless them. Whatever you like, it came from someone else. It came from someone's ingenuity. The fact that we're sitting in light... You know, who's, who's making the clothes to keep you warm? What woman in Bangladesh or India or China? You know? And if you think about it, you just can't not do anything to make the world a better place because there is this tremendous sense of gratitude that arises. We always think what, what they didn't do for us, you know. I used to think before I found Mahayana Buddhism and did the meditation on the kindness of the mother, I just thought... My mother screwed me up mentally and she should pay for my psychotherapy bill. <laughs> but um, she did the best she could, you know. She did the best she could. And uh, if you put a job in the newspaper for, for, you know, okay, need a taxi driver, need a cook, need someone to change dirty nappies, need someone to put up with teenage tantrums, need someone to be told, I hate you, um, this food is crap, all of the above, listen to your problems, um, call home to, you know, move back home when you run out of money. No one would take that job, really. Yeah. So I think um, in these times, we need gratitude, okay? We need gratitude. Think about what's right, what's working. Think about the kindness of your mother and see interbeing, Okay? Happiness is not just a personal matter. Happiness is a communal matter. We have an epidemic of loneliness and depression. Older men are killing themselves. Young men are killing themselves. Women are being beaten and raped. You know, we need to feel our feelings. Stop brutalizing ourselves. Especially stop brutalizing men and women. Women are being brutalized physically because males 
from society are being brutalized to shut down their emotions. You know? It's a toxic cycle we have to break. Yeah. Think of interconnectedness. And then when interconnectedness, when you understand interconnectedness, then this feeling of altruism, this feeling of bodhicitta, this feeling of compassion arises and the purpose of life becomes clear. Find the meaning. Dedicate yourself to something higher than yourself or someone. And happiness will come as an attendant to that. Don't just aim for happiness and self-indulgence. You know? Aim for, aim to be a person of substance. You know? What are we telling our young people now? Aim to be Kim Kardashian? How terribly shallow. You know? Aim to be a person of substance, a person of compassion. Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama are not winning any beauty contests, but they, are, they have a kind of beauty that history will remember. Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Way. I was walking on Martin Luther King Jr. Way. These are people we remember, you know. In a hundred years, who will remember Kim Kardashian? Bless her. So gratitude, interconnectedness, compassion arising, okay? When compassion arises, you feel blessed. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Okay, So it blesses you too. People think, oh, but I'm already so stressed out. We're stressed out because we're holding so tightly onto ourselves and our thoughts and our projections. We, we need to just kind of take off the filter of ego for a while and relate nakedly and openly to life as it's happening in the present moment. Not as a white person, not as a black person, not as a girl or a boy or a man or a woman. Just as it is in the present moment, open to every possibility without too many of our opinions tainting everything. That's hard to do, but that's how bodhisattvas see the world. You know, that is why the Buddha could meet so many different kinds of people and give a teaching perfect for each being, you know, because they're free of the the cocoon of selfhood. And then some people think, well, if you t- like, it can be misunderstood this idea of taking off the ego, the fi- ego filter, because that's spiritual bypassing. How do you feel your feelings, honor your experiences, and still be selfless, and still be not having an agenda, not being manipulative? That's a challenge. You just have to be aware of those things. The fact that you're even aware of those things means they can't fully take you over. You know, like we, we have this practice, Churd, where we invite the demons to feast on us. And it's a metaphor for inviting the problems, inviting the challenges, inviting the delusions, noticing them, having a cup of tea with them, neither acting out nor suppressing. And when we do that, the demons become our allies. You see, because all the energy that's tied up in self-suppressing or obsessive lust, or anger, or self-hatred. Imagine what you could do if that energy was purified into something more inspiring. You just sit with that, make friends with that, be at home with that, because that's the compost that will grow you the roses of insight. You don't need to become a different person or run away from who you are and what you feel. You can honor that, but you don't need to be controlled by that. So write 10 things that you feel grateful for every day. Yeah? Have a regular meditation practice. Find some inspiring words from a text. You know, do some spiritual reading a few times a week. Yeah? Because most of us have lost the plot. So we need to kind of, we need, we need sangha, we need inspiration to help us come back. So some beautiful sayings for you today. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Martin Luther King Jr. True compassion is more than flinging a coin at a beggar. It comes, uh, it comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. There should not be homeless people in the richest country in the world. People should have health care in the richest country in the world. 
people of color or people without visas but who have green cards should not feel afraid that they're going to be shot or deported at any time. This country was a melting pot. This country was made by immigrants. You know. We are, uh, our diversity makes us strong. And then, you know, um, make a small gesture to someone suffering because there are too many people falling through the cracks. The gaps between rich and poor are getting bigger day by day. You know, just say, how are you? How can I help? Now and then. You know, volunteer somewhere if you can. Or if you can't volunteer, support someone who is. You know. Um, skip a meal and donate the money to charity. Yeah. Today, 40,000 children died because of poverty. Half the world's wealth is in the hands of eight individuals, all of them white men. It's completely crazy. So it's like, maybe we don't want to know these things, but we have to know these things. You know, and it's finding a balance between the bad news and the bad things going on and self-care, middle path. But, you know, um, we need to know some of these things because these things, these things that break our heart are the things that also open our heart. And opening our heart is good for practice. Practice is not just here to make you comfortable. Practice is here to shake things up, to wake you up, to pull out the rug. We're always trying to get comfortable, you know. And then we, when we get comfortable, we get bored and, and we start looking for some excitement, it's usually some kind of mischievous excitement. You know. But actually, life is always pulling out the rug. Things are always falling apart because... Things arise due to causes and conditions. Things are by nature impermanent. So why always try and hold on? Why not be at home in the homeless home? Why not be okay with that? That builds resilience, that embracing of the present moment. Connect with people, organize six friends, activate the heart of your community, and you'll feel heartened. Rather than thinking, oh, it's so bad, it's so bad, do something that you can to change, change the situation. When I went to central India, I never had an intention of starting a charity. But I just slowly started to see the people who were coming to the temple and what they needed, you know? Like a woman brought a starving baby to the, to the center and said, please help, please do some chanting. My baby is dying. And I just thought, this baby has diarrhea, $2 pill, it'll be fine. You can't, uh, you have to upaya, the bodhisattva, the spiritual warrior, uses skillful means. You can't give dharma to someone whose stomach is empty. The dharma, the medicine that you use to respond to someone in suffering, is according to the sickness of the person you're helping. And the person who's helping is not any higher than the person who is suffering. It is because of these people, these difficult suffering people, that you will one day become a Buddha. Without annoying people, how could you possibly practice the perfection of patience? You know? So then I started a charity nine years ago, which has now blossomed into something that helps 2,000 people a year. I still can't afford to rent a room in my own country. But somehow, I managed... Like, people just started giving for that, you know? Some children? Okay. Um... So we have a girls' home. We have uh, 7,000 meals per year for slum people. We have 130 children in after-school studies because the poor schools are such bad quality. We've saved girls from child marriage. We've saved babies. We've helped mothers give birth safely. We've helped women get out of domestic violence situations. We train women in jobs like beauty therapy, sewing, and so forth. You know, and that's just one person. Imagine what you could do. Imagine what you could do if you combined with others, combined your goodwill. Commit to give 5 or 10% of your income to a good cause. So if you're someone who has no money but a lot of time, then give your time. Or even if you are very sick and you really have no money, give people a smile. You know, Give whatever you can. Tibetan Buddhists, we start by giving water cups to the Buddha 
which represent the eight offerings to welcome a king. Um, water, giving water doesn't cost much, you know. But we start with the practice of giving. That's one of the six perfections of a bodhisattva. Um, extend compassion, you know. Have a few $1 notes now and then, and when you see someone, just give, you know. Don't worry about whether they're going to use it to drink or not. Someone's been elected. Maybe they need to. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but really, like, don't think about it. Just give, you know. Just give. Don't give a, a lot of money to an alcoholic, but just a little bit. They'll buy a coffee. You know, life is very hard on the street. I was a street kid. It's very hard. You, life is so bad and unsafe on the street, especially for women that you want to start drinking. People often start drinking as a result of being on the street because it's so hard, you know. Um, and then address the structures that perpetuate violence and inequality. When I was a teenager, I couldn't get a job that would pay me enough money to pay my rent because the minimum wage for kids under 18 was so low. You know, so it's like a catch-22 situation, and the only kind of work that paid any decent money was sex work, which I fortunately managed to avoid. Um, but you would be surprised how many men are predatory, you know, men that, uh, what people do when no one else is looking, you know. Not to say all men are like that. Um, so, wow, there's never enough time. Yeah. When we have a glimpse of freedom, we realize that actually freedom is so much nicer than always having to hold on to our agenda, to our, the things we tell us about ourselves, like I am this person. Like we want a reference point, you know? It's interesting, like you tell yourself, I am this, I am an engineer, I have a master's, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say when you're retired? It's like suddenly you have no purpose. Or what are you going to do if you lose your job? Or if, you know, you say, I am married, I am this person, I have this child. What will you do if you get a divorce? What will you do if your child dies? You know? These things happen. How can you find something, you know, kind of... There's something deeper than that, than just who you are, you know? And that thing ties you to everyone, that freedom. And when you can see that freedom in yourself, you can see that freedom in others and share that freedom with others. Um... Yeah, and a bodhisattva, a person on the path of compassion or a spiritual person is um, someone who is open in every situation. It doesn't mean you don't have boundaries, but it means that you are not always caught in your opinions because if we meet someone who doesn't agree with us, especially someone on the other side of the political fence, our barriers immediately come up and we think you are a certain kind of person. It's very interesting because I've spoken to some people on the other side of my political fence and I've realized many of them are very normal. You can't tell what they look like. Sometimes you can because they have something like, um, I like guns or something. But, but, <laughs> but you know, you, you can't always tell. And it's like listening to their point of view and their fears, some of them are legitimate from, from where they stand and from their life experience. Some of it is just hate, but to just ha have a dialogue, you know, and not immediately write them off, because we have to have a dialogue, at least if you can talk in a, in a, in a civil way, you know, calmly, you might find the rare person who you can have a logical discussion with without it turning into a yelling match. It's really not easy right now, but we can do our best. Because a, a Buddha is uh, cool, you know, awake, open, and not. Because um, you can say that these emotions, these thoughts and opinions, they're a bit like quicksand, you know. And um, once you step into them, you can get totally get sucked in. This is who I am, and how dare you threaten me, you know. But. If you can just sit, actually there is a way to get out of quicksand, you know. You just go your, your legs like this 
create a bit of space. And then you loosen it up a bit because you only sink in quicksand to here. And if you make a bit of space down the bottom and you get near the edge, you can then pull yourself out. So you just need to loosen things up, make a bit of space, and then get, get out. But when, when the, it's too solid, you can't get out. That's why you need to make a bit of space between you and your thoughts and feelings and your opinions. And that's how we heal too, you know. When we get a bit of space from the, from the, the rawness, we, we can sit with it, but we are not completely, we are not our pain. Our pain arises, abides, and dissolves. Then we can get ourselves out of the quagmire of samsara. And maybe we can even give other people a hand too. So, um, I ordained at the age of 23, and, um, and I've devoted 16 years of my life to the Buddhist community. Somehow there's this idea that monastic life is very easy, and we've taken the easy path, and lay life is the challenging path, because um, you're living in the real world. <laughs> um, but all the pain of society is carried in our own heart, you know. And uh, in this day and age, there is really not a lot of infrastructure for Western monastics, especially in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Uh, I know recently Theravada bhikkhunis have made a lot of progress in overcoming thousands of years of patriarchy, and they finally found a little bit of support in California, which I think is wonderful. Um, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there is only one monastery in the world uh, which is controlled by a Western monastic, which does not charge Western monastics, even though Western monastics are often very busy serving centers, serving lamas. Um, unfortunately, most of the money of these centers is either funneled into the Tibetan community or into the lay, invested back into the lay community. And we have a 75% disrobing rate. Um, and th 13 of the 15 people I ordained with have disrobed. Um, and that's not, like, we're kind of like an endangered species, you know, where, where um, I, I hit the glass ceiling pretty quickly in Buddhism. I, my father always said, you can do anything. I didn't feel any sexism growing up because previous generations of women had fought for equality. But when I was told, uh, when I ordained as a nun, I, I, um, I realized there was a difference between Western nuns and Asian. And um, I was told to pray to be reborn as a, as a man so I could become a Buddha. And I was also told, you can never be like your teacher, you know, so just do service, clean the floor, um, you know, answer the phone, and, and um, in your next life, you can do something better, you know. And the, the men, the, the Tibetan men were on thrones, and the Western women, nuns, were, you know, working. And on, on the first day I ordained, I took off my robes and went to work in a lay job to pay rent to the Dharma Center. The, the idea of charging rent to a monastic is something that has never happened in the history of Buddhism. Um, and we neither had the freedom of lay life nor the, nor the benefits of a monastic life. So there is a huge problem going on. You know, recently on the cover of Lion's Roar, there was a picture saying um, the future of Buddhism. There was not one monastic on that cover, in fact. Um, and, you know, myself... Um, as, and, and, and uh, you know, people used to bring food to the Tibetan Lama and not to the Westerners. Uh, we had to pay for our own food. And um, so I left that center after a year because I wasn't really, it was sexist and, and racist and unequal. And even to say that means that Tibetan Buddhist centers won't invite me. <laughs> so um, Then, uh, then I, I decided I was going to live on faith. I met Ajahn Tanasanti, and she, she was like one of my mentors, as is Bhante Sujato, the Australian monk who um, tried to help with Ajahn Brahms revive the Theravadan bhikkhuni lineage. So I've lived about 30% of my monastic life in Theravadan temples. Um, and basically, um, I... I decided to live on faith, which meant I was often homeless. Sometimes I slept in homeless shelters. Sometimes I slept on friends' couches. Sometimes um, in other temples. 
And I was feeling pretty sorry for myself. But then things started happening, like I got invited to teach at Alcoholics Anonymous, prisons, schools, drug and alcohol rehab centers, HIV hospices, you name it. Without money, I did it because none of these centers have enough money to pay a psychotherapist or a yoga teacher or someone who is making a good living out of these things. So monastics are an investment in the community. They do things from the goodness of their heart. Not to say that lay people can't, but we have the time. If I had a, had a family to support or a mortgage to pay or superannuation, I would not have been able to do these things. You know. Um, so I did that for five years and then I went to India and studied for a while and then I realized I also couldn't get admitted into Tibetan temples. I couldn't get a visa to stay. The, the food made me sick. Um, and and then, uh, then I went to, to the slums in, in central India and, and I've been there for 10 years. Uh, but I'm kind of burnt out so I can't, I can't live there full time anymore. My foster daughter died and I've seen some terrible things that no one should have to see, that they have to live with all the time, of course. But I hope to continue the work of Bodhicitta Foundation. But right now I'm focusing on, you can see the brochure, Kalyanamitra Foundation for Western Monastics. And it's like a retreat center in America or Australia, depending on where the support is, a small retreat center, um, the second in the world, hopefully, that will not charge Western Monastics and will help us continue our socially engaged activity but also a time of you know, contemplation so that we actually have something to offer society and as a refuge for activists. So if you're interested in supporting that, um, details of donations are there and my email is also there if you have any fundraising ideas. So thank you for listening to my Dharma talk tonight. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. I'm staying with the lovely man in the red jacket over there called Roberto in Glen Park. And, um, and, I, go where I'm <laughs> and I go where I'm invited, um, but, but soon my time in America will end. Um, and if there is more serious offers, then I'll come back. And if there isn't, I'll go back to Australia. Yes. I'm going to New York tomorrow. Yeah. So... I hope you can all find ways to plant some good seeds in these challenging times. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. For the most part, it's been a pleasure, actually. Helping people in the slum has been a pleasure. Uh, because if you're a Western monastic in... in uh, Suddenly, ordaining as a nun, I suddenly felt like what it might be like for minorities. You know, uh, a little bit of my white privilege got chipped away, <laughs> and suddenly I knew, um, not not to the same extent because I can always take off my robes, but I just had a little bit of insight. You know, and um, you're kind of regarded as a bit like a drag queen or a little bit of a freak. You know, and suddenly I, I started attracting all these other minorities and people who were a little bit left of center and it's it's very it's been very enriching you know actually and people open up to you they really show themselves um when you're a monastic there's something about you that makes people want to confess to you so um it's been very interesting i think i've actually had a lot more love as a monastic i've gained a lot more insight into human nature um and people have have often been kind in their own ways but it's such a strange thing in western society this idea of someone who's dependent on the economy of goodness. It's, and like we feel anxious if someone says, by donation, give as much as you feel. It means the exchange, what is being given is priceless and therefore you can't limit it, you can't put a price on it. So that freaks us out. We're like, well, how much should I give? Tell me. You know, put a price on that love. You know. But actually, um, community has always been part of Buddhism. And monasteries have always been a kind of welfare safety net. You know, for older people who needed a place to go, like a community life, the monastery was the place, you know. And they had a lot of say because the monks, they were handling the money, you know, and they would say, oh, we don't want to support that. So the monks would be like, hmm, 
amongst Hatchelis. <laughs> you know, it was a, it was a, the fourfold Sangha. It was a beautiful, strong thing. You know, and the orphans, the people who, you know, they would ordain as monks, get an education. Later on, they could disrobe if they wanted to. Um, everybody could come and join in. If someone lost their job and they needed food for a while, they'd come and volunteer in the monastery kitchen. Not so saying that this is a great model now, but it's something. You know, it's something that people don't fear. They have this kind of, it's there for everyone, even the cats and the dogs. Have you noticed in Thai temples how many dogs and cats there are? <laughs> so I have seven dogs right now that I'm feeding. <laughs> so, um, yes. We have uh, 80,000 American dollars and a lot of hopes. It, me and about two other people. Yeah, I have a few monastics interested, but um, it's like until you have a place, until you have like a, people willing to start a committee and stability, you know, we're just trying to get a foothold in. In Australia or America, depending on where the support is. It's taken me 16 years to raise this much money. It's, it's not like Asia where you just go and it's like ka-ching, you know, there's like money, you know, it's like really painful. It's so easy to, so much easier to raise money for slum children than monastics, you know, because the whole idea of monastics is such a strange, antiquated idea for so many Westerners, you know. Most people don't even know the purpose of monastics, let alone see value in supporting it. And yet, you know, Buddhism's been in the West for 50 years. You would think that we would know that it's valuable to have facilities for people who want to practice full-time, even if they only ordain for a short time or a few years, you know. It would be funny if someone went into a Buddhist center in 50 years' time and said, does anyone live like that man in his robes, that prince who gave up a kingdom for the benefit of the many? Is there anyone living with compassion and simplicity? Are there any places where people can live like that? and devote themselves. And we'd say, no, sorry, it's $1,000 for a course. And, and we didn't think that was worth supporting. That's just a metaphor. You know, it's not a metaphor. Even in our own culture, you know, if you would follow me, take nothing, not shoes, not a purse, not a staff. Look at the birds of the field. Uh, they fly so high, yet Solomon... And they do not reap nor sow, nor worry what tomorrow will bring. Not, not even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one, as one like this. It's the Bible. You know? Simplicity, community, generosity, mutual support. I mean, not all of us are ready to live like that. Even I'm struggling to live like that. But it's, it's an idea, you know, because really right now we're, what we're seeing is kind of the collapse of capitalism. This idea of... of um, Infinite growth is not sustainable. You know, I'm not advocating any particular social system, but certainly we need uh, more regulation in terms of quality healthcare, quality education, and to start investing in community. Because what what do we have? You know, instead of community, we we invest in things, but things can't replace people. We have to invest in people. Before people had things, they invested in each other in community. You know, and we have, like, try to have a community meal once a week or once a month. Reach out to people, you know. There are people sitting at home for days on end not meeting anyone, you know. And everybody feels that they're alone in their suffering. But if you talk to the people, you realize you are not alone, you know. So many men feel inadequate. So many women f- hate their bodies, you know. Whatever it is, whatever hang-up it is, it's human. And you'll feel better about it if you share, you know, but also give balance. Time for yourself, time for others. Community gardens, something, soup kitchen, something. I used to feel great when I volunteered one day a week in a, it was like a soup kitchen, but rich people came too, or middle class people, and they just offer by donation whatever they wanted, and then poor people could come in and offer whatever they could offer. It was so nice. All kinds of people, different people. You realize everybody's human, you know. 
Nobody's got fangs. It's very interesting. And it's much more rewarding to live like that. You realize, you know, if we never bought a new thing for the next 50 years, we would have enough with all the junk we've made. All the, all the fast fashions filling landfill. Buy something once in a while that is um, sustainable, that lasts a long time. Fix it. You know, invest in each other. Find new ways of, of supporting each other. Reuse, recycle, live simply, live simply so that others can simply live. That way we'll turn it around. Have a good week. Good luck. Um, so is there anything else before I dedicate the merit? Is there any other announcements? No. May you be happy. And um, by this merit, may all beings who suffer and all beings who are being bombed and sick, suffering, lonely, depressed, disenfranchised, homeless, beaten, and for anyone who is suffering in any way, may all beings quickly find um, the end of suffering. May there be peace and well-being and goodwill. May the precious mind of compassion, not yet born, arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. May we quickly realize all things to be no more substantial than the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the arising of every phenomena. Thus by the merits made by me, now or at some other time, be shared amongst all beings here, infinite, immeasurable, by rejoicing in this cause, this gift of merits given by me, may beings all forever live a happy life, be free of hate. May they find the path secure and their good wishes all succeed. We who believe in freedom shall not rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom shall not rest until it comes. To me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. And if I can shed some light as they carry us through the gale, not needing to fight for power, not needing for the light just to shine on me. But if I can teach others to stand up and fight, it's the only way our struggle survives. We who believe in freedom shall not rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom shall not rest until it comes. May you be well. So we thank you for coming and invite you to help stack the chairs and take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.